Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Mark Cox, and I get to teach again. So uh, Tim is not going to be able to be here. So it's uh, my pleasure to to once again uh, enjoy uh, your company and and look at a lesson together. I'm going to resist the temptation of rushing through. So I just want you guys to enjoy a conversation with me. Please ask a lot of questions. That's how I'm most effective, and um, we'll we'll just go from there. All right. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the Sabbath day and an opportunity to uh, come together and to uh, enlighten our minds and hearts through your Holy Spirit and through your word. May you be with us today and be glorified and honored in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So the title of this lesson, it's uh, the, the quarterly is The Three Cosmic Messages. We're doing lesson three today. The eternal gospel. Uh, that's a pretty big concept, and I'm sure we won't be able to explore all of the aspects of it today, but I want to get as far as we can. Um, the memory text is, and I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, and kindred, and tongue, and people. Um, how many, when, I mean, in my age, it's kind of hard to think back when I was a kid, but how many of you ever drew a, a treasure map when you were a kid? I was the only one, seriously? Well, there we go. Thank you. Thank you. I tried to follow one. Try to follow one. You know, you know, put the little da- dots and dashes, and at the very end, you put what? X. An X. X marks the spot. That's what we would say. So the book of Revelation is written in a way in a similar fashion to where X marks the spot. The most important place where the treasure is, is where the X is. Are you familiar with the idea of a chiasm? Okay, we'll get, we'll we'll explore that. But right in the middle of Revelation, and don't go by the chapter and verse, but right in the middle of Revelation is the three angels' message. Chapter 14, 6 through 12. And I would submit to you that the most important idea is the verse or the, 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 our passage today that refers to the everlasting gospel. Everything both before it and after it centers on that idea. If Mike were here, we would have a much better understanding of this chiasm. But Revelation is written in a literary uh, poetic form called a chiasm. Uh, if you're familiar with the, the Greek letter chi, it looks like the English letter X, and, uh, which is why, where we get the, the, the term chiasm, because those who wrote back in those days wrote poetically, and they didn't have computers like we do today, to where you can go back day after day and, and form it and, and mold it to where you had um, something presentable. And when they wrote, particularly like the book of Revelation, it was, a, it was a masterpiece. It was a work of art. And it was to help you not only understand it, or rather comprehend it, but memorize it and it to stay in your head. So this isn't just some random thoughts that some uh, old prophet on the Isle of Patmos sat down and wrote. Uh, this is actually a masterpiece. And we're going to look at that a little bit today to understand how this chiasm helps us understand the most important point 
in Revelation, which is the everlasting gospel. Uh, Dean, that, that one slide that shows the two um, pictures there. So <laughs> I've had these pictures in my phone forever, um, but I've had the magazine that I took them from for like 10, 15 years, but an old uh, Signs of the Time magazine put out a really special um, uh, issue with Daniel and Revelation, and in there they had Revelation and the chiasm. And you can't read that, but uh, we'll, we'll go to one that you can read in a minute, but notice the colors, and notice the, 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 to the far left on the top is your, is your prologue, and the far right at the bottom is your epilogue. And there's actually key phrases that go back and forth. And then you notice the, the second chapter, very similar in color to the second to last chapter. And the third chapter, like the third, and, or the section rather. And then the last two kind of mirror each other together. But that is how it's organized. Uh, let's see if we can go to the next one there, Dean. So this is written, the chiasm is written kind of like a, like a puzzle for the sake of discovery. If you're reading this, it's almost like, anybody like puzzles, crossword puzzles, or, or riddles, or things like that? A chiasm is written in a way, in my opinion, this is Mark Cox's opinion. In fact, this whole lesson today is Mark's opinion on, on this lesson. But, um, so a chiasm is written in a way to kind of uh, enjoy the discovery, to see how it's organized, to understand the, 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 the parts and the pieces, how they mirror and reflect each other. You can actually take the, the book of Revelation and fold it in half and it just mirrors each other in concepts and ideas. At the, we didn't look at it the other one, but the first half of the chiasm is a historical. It kind of goes down a historical line. And the last half of the chiasm is eschatological. Historical and eschatological, but yet when you mirror them together, there's a reflection of ideas and concepts. For example, um, the prologue has some key phrases in it. Uh, This is the introduction. It's uh, the testimony of Jesus. Blessed is he who reads. Behold, he is coming. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. And then the epilogue has some key phrases that are very similar. I, Jesus, sent this testimony. Blessed is he who keeps. Behold, I am coming soon. I am the Alpha and the Omega. So when you start seeing that in your Bible, you go, wait, somebody had some genius idea here, and he's writing something that is supposed to be conceived uh, and, and, and understood and ability to really kind of memorize and put in your head. Uh, I'm not that good at all that, by, by the way. <clears throat> Uh, the second section on the top is the seven churches. And the, the summary of, the, of that, that section is Christ counsels his church at war, scattered in many cities. And there are key phrases. Christ walks among the seven lamps, the tree of life, open door. Christ sits on his father's throne. New Jerusalem comes down from heaven. I am coming soon. And then we look at the bottom half. The eschatological half, we see the new Jerusalem, like the church. Christ rewards his church at peace, and they gathered into one city. Christ is the eternal lamp. Very similar concepts. Tree of life. 
gates never closed. Throne of God and the Lamb of, and, and of the Lamb. A new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. I'm coming soon. So if you go on to the lesson, you'll, you'll have this reference. But I literally went through my Bible and just highlighted those key phrases so that I could see how it was mirrored each other. Now, you can do all this in your spare time, but for our purposes today, the reason we emphasize the chiasm is it takes us to the most important point, the idea of the everlasting gospel. And that's the beauty of a chiasm. You may find it interesting, particularly our group here, if you've ever read the book, The Great Controversy. Um, The book, The Great Controversy, I've always seen it as kind of a, a commentary on the book of Revelation. It highlights uh, the issues of the final conflict and uh, therefore the apocalypse uh, of Revelation. You may find it interesting if you look at it carefully enough that it's also written in a, a, maybe loosely in my opinion, a chiasm. The very first half of the great controversy is historical and the last half is more eschatological, more what you should be looking at the final events. So that's a beautiful way to compare or to study Revelation and use the book the Great Controversy. It's, to me, I just love it. So, um, As Adventists, you know, we've put a lot of our, our sense of identity on the three angels' message. Um, our origin, where we, kinda, where, where we came out of, our sense of purpose, the principles by which we have uh, taken our mission to the world, that is the, uh, the message that Jesus is coming soon, and uh, how to prepare for the final conflict. Uh, over the years, of course, uh, our message and mission has evolved into quite a large corporation, uh, uh, institution that is governed by um, uh, a financial structure and a legal structure. And I think sometimes, at least my growing up experience was, we lost sight of the message and the mission, and we kind of got hung up with the, trying to save the corporation, <laughs> you know, trying to save the institution. I think it's important as we get near the end of time to recognize that uh, what's going to characterize the church of the last days is not a, a corporate structure so much as the character of God's people in the last days. And, you know, if, if I were to put up a, I should probably get a, a magic marker board here sometime, but like a Venn diagram, and, and I were to, to try to, to illustrate how all the different denominations, and I get one big circle and then draw all the little circles around it and say each of those represent a denomination and half of it over and half of it outside, the big circle representing God's people well, where would the Adventists fall? Would all of us be in there? Part of us outside, part of us inside? The Baptists, the Presbyterians, all these others. God's people are going to be characterized by, I mean, rather, they're going to be determined by their character, not by their organization. And I think that's a, a healthy way for us to look at it. While we have a purpose and principles and a mission as, as Adventists, we also need to understand that God's purpose is global. And uh, as, as successful as the Adventist church is, uh, we have a big job to do because there's 8 billion people in the world and there's only, what, 25 million of us maybe? <clears throat> so that gives us an idea. But they're going to be characterized as people who have the faith of Jesus and they keep the commandments of God. 
I know I've been just kind of rambling here, but uh, please feel free to jump in. Think about uh, these two ideas. Faith of Jesus and they keep the commandments of God. Now, we've been over this in the lesson before. We're very understanding that if you keep the commandments of God, will that save you? Now, we know that keeping the commandments of God won't save you, but that's characteristic of God's people. Is the faith of Jesus a save, uh, uh, save you? Righteousness by faith? Salvation by faith? That's what we teach, right? So these two ideas come together in the characteristics of God's people in the last days. Any thoughts on that? Are we, are we together or, or like, that's a problem for me. All right? Surprisingly, I'm already at Sunday. So everybody enjoy the chiasm there of, of uh, Revelation? Yes. It, makes, it makes for an exciting um, understanding that the three angels' message is important. And right, that's right in the middle. That is the, where X marks the spot. The revelation of Jesus, that's how Revelation starts. Um, verse 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel and his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the word of this prophecy and keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. I have a, a following quote there. I don't know if you have all that on there, Dean, uh, the great controversy. I think I just, I'll read it too. The truth, these truths as presented in Revelation 14, where our chiasm takes us, in connection with the everlasting gospel. This is written in great controversy, by the way. Uh, this comes out of there. Uh, in connection with the everlasting gospel, will distinguish the church of Christ at the time of his appearing. For as the result of the threefold message, it is announced, here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. And this message in the last, is, the, is the last to be given before the coming of the Lord. Immediately following the proclamation of the Son of Man, is seen by the prophet coming in the glory to reap the harvest of the earth. Those who received the light concerning the sanctuary, which is a wonderful another study, and the immutability of the law of God, which itself is very is at the crux of the matter as well, were filled with joy and wonder as they saw the beauty and harmony of the system of truth that opened to their understanding. They desired that the light which appeared to them so precious might be imparted to all Christians and they could not but believe that it would be joyfully accepted. But truth that would place them at variance with the world were not welcome to many who claimed to follow, to be followers of Christ. Obedience to the fourth commandment, this is the Sabbath commandment, require a sacrifice from which the majority drew back. Okay. Did you notice 
what's happened the last two or three years? How the world has become polarized? Very interesting, isn't it? How, and, and by the way, I think what we just went through is preparatory to dry run. The same issues that were about individual autonomy, uh, physical autonomy and health, which were pretty, I mean, that was really easy to get to. Right? We should save everybody. We need to, you know, uh, everybody needs to get this shot. And the deception was very clever. And it was able to get the whole world involved. It's unprecedented. But notice how it divided the world very quickly. There were those uh, who believed in it, those who didn't, those who saw through it, those who did not. Um, It didn't matter what state you were in, what business you were in, what your background or organization was, what class of people you were, what church you went to, what race or creed, excuse me. Even the Adventist church, we saw division. What is it that causes this kind of division? Even among believers, our faith is tested, our truth is tested, our character is tested. It takes a particular kind of psychology or mind to be able to see through uh, deceptions like what we've been through the last two years. And it takes a particular kind of mind to be able to stand up against it. People were threatened with their livelihoods. They were, they were deceived about their health and well-being. And, and the, the, you know, everything's coming out now to where we've seen lots of damage done. But what was it that allowed us to be divided by those things? And that was just our physical health and autonomy, which we should be very keen on. I care about what goes in my body. I'm, I'm particular about what the doctor puts in my arm. I'm particular about what I eat and drink and what I do. So my body should be a real difficult thing to, to breach. But what about when it comes to the Sabbath? I mean, Sabbath is just an idea, right? It's just one day or another day. How hard is it going to be to face that attack when it comes? So understanding the issues of what we've just been through will help us understand what's about ready to happen in the world. Coming, in my opinion. So this is, Revelation is all about an end time message, all about preparing people for Jesus to come and the final conflict. A world divided. What gave the three Hebrew worthies? Remember how the idol, the golden idol, was out in the the valley there, and the command was to bow down to it? And these three guys just stand there. Do you think they were terrified? Probably. Do you think they had already made up in their mind before the moment, before the moment happened, what they were going to do? They understood the sacrifice, the risks, and they made their mind up before the moment. That's why I think what we've just been through is so valuable to us. Whether you uh, participated or didn't participate, whatever the division was, the lessons 
we learned are relevant to what we're going to see in the, in the final events. Um, it takes a particular kind of mind and heart to be able to stand up against truth and authoritarianism. Yes, Russell. Talking about <coughs> friends on the plane of Dura, I, I, think, I think the decision to bow or not bow was made long before they got on the plane. I think it was part of it was integral to their character already that they would not do anything to dishonor the God that they that they were raised with, the children, the God that they had developed an intimate intimate relationship with throughout their captivity and castration and um, service in Babylon. They they had submitted themselves already to a trust relationship with him. And they were going to leave the outcomes in his court no matter what happened. I don't think it was a matter of do we bow or do we not bow? I don't think its decision wasn't made on the plane. I, I think it was made long, long before. It, it was just already a part of their character. Yeah, I'll tell a little story here. I don't know if I mentioned in the beginning, but um, somehow I got orders to go back to the Navy this next week. Uh, somehow they want a, an old guy like me to come back. So, but uh, the the guys I worked with uh, were a very unique group of guys, and. Um, uh, they were they were special forces guys, and they were told that they would get no religious accommodation because they're special operators. They go all around the world. And uh, many of them are very strong Christian people, have a strong faith. And they would come to me, um, and they would say, what do we do? I said, well, we're going to write a religious accommodation request anyway. And then uh, um, I'll, I'll leave part of the story out for the sake of... Uh, of confidentiality, but uh, many of them say, what, what are we, how are we going to do this? Now, I had already decided, I had had many moments alone already, that I knew where I was going to stand. <clears throat> I was going to sacrifice my career, my position, my retirement, all of that. And so I already decided that. So when the guys came to me, they knew that I was prepared to do the same thing that we were talking about. And, and that gave me credibility with the men, all the way from East Coast to West Coast. And um, they knew that they, I was ready to make the same sacrifice, put my career, my income, my retirement, all that on the line. And I think that uh, to, it was an interesting personal experience because as I sat in my chair and thought through each thing and says, am I willing to give that up? Well, I'm not going to sell my soul for a few thousand dollars a month retirement. I can work for that. I can figure out a way. Uh, and I'm not going to uh, give in uh, on these matters that are principles and of our country. Uh, the religious clauses were squarely in my lap as a, as a chaplain. In fact, I don't think the role of the chaplain was more, more sharply clear to me than it was at that moment. Uh, uh, that because if we don't protect the religious clauses of the Constitution in the military... Guess what falls apart in society? Uh, most people really don't think about it, and I didn't realize it either, but my role as a chaplain, uh, <laughs> I think they kind of conditioned everybody to think that chaplains just pray and read their Bible and, and you know, encourage each other or one another. But when we realize that the role of the chaplain is to, to protect and defend the religious clauses of the Constitution, uh, then it becomes a much more important role. And the risks are high because you won't be popular but that became very clear to me that that was our job. 
And we had to take a stand. And many of us did. Many did not, which to my surprise. And I think everybody fought the battle different ways, so there's no disgrace to anyone. Uh, but it just it was, a, it was a dawning for me. So when I sat there in my chair thinking these things through, I emotionally gave those things over to God. I just said, Lord, they're yours. And uh, I gave them to him. And you know, for the last year and a half, unemployed and working through it. And to my surprise, two weeks ago, I got a call. And I've got, assuming everything goes smoothly, I've got orders and I'll be gone on Wednesday. So I think that God is working through these things. And we have to resist the devil on various different contexts, various different levels. Whether it's in our heart or in our societies, all kinds of ways. Um, If we resist the devil, what does he do? He flees. So these are important things for us. But anyhow, I share that story in, in harmony with Russell's comment about our three Hebrew worthies. They knew it before. They went in before. And that really changes your ability to stand before your commanding officer. You're not trembling because your heart is already settled. You're not, you, you go and stand before your boss. You've already made the sacrifice. So you're prepared to take the consequences, whatever it is. And I think that's where our three Hebrew worthies were. They were already clearly prepared in their heart and their mind to take whatever comes. Remember how it says in the scripture, it says, our God will save us, but even if he does not. And I think that's an important phrase. Yes, sir. I think that's important, but before you even reach that step, you have to have the ability to think critically. And instead of just following rules blindly, so you have to be able to know well, what am I going to do and why. And I think that's lacking in society in general. I hope in our, the, the following conversation we, we, we nail that uh, idea. Thank you. What's your name? I'm sorry. Larry. Larry. Thank you, Larry. So I want to I um, address the idea of what it means to be moral. Okay? Just, just as, a, as something, an idea that we can refer to. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Herman. Uh, before you go on, uh, you know, the three Hebrews, they had a kind of a cut and dry situation like that said, though. They had it in their mind that this might happen or something like this might happen. But here in the last couple of years, there were some that really had a cut and dry decision on their jobs or something. But overall, it wasn't something that maybe Adventists were prepared for. We were prepared for Sunday keeping. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if they'd come out and said, okay, you've got to come to work on Sabbath no matter what, we may have been able to stand up a little bit better, but the church didn't put out any real, say, okay, we'll back you if you decide not to uh, get the shot or something. Uh, it wasn't quite as cut and dried no. as, say, the Sabbath, which we've all been preaching for the hundred you know, for years, yeah. and, uh, it's going to be come down to the Sabbath keeping or not Sabbath keeping, and, and yeah. maybe this was just kind of a dry run yeah. to show us that the government can take over and tell us what to do on getting the shotter, but uh, it wasn't quite keep the Sabbath, don't keep the Sabbath. Correct. Uh, Correct. So there were some. It was. It was a definitely a new attack. You know, for me, the understanding of the great controversy just made this very clear to me. You know, we have. Like we have the individual conflict, and then we have our society conflict, and then we have the cosmic conflict. 
that helps us understand the kind of things we're going to face at the, at the, uh, in our societies and in our souls. Um, but uh, I see you, Russell. Um, having that perspective, I mean, I, I saw this coming even before the mandate came in. And I, went, I went into my commanding officer's uh, uh, in the Exo's office, and I said, "Hey, because we we're all good friends." And I said, "Just so you know, ahead of time, not doing it." <laughs> so you, so if it comes to it, just write the papers out. If you got to give me whatever. And by the way, I got an Article Ninety Two, which is disobeying a direct order. And the very day that it was supposed to go in, uh, another injunction came to stop it on that day. It's a long, interesting story, but but. Um, so the very, it was on my commanding officer's desk to send in. So anyhow, my EXO down there, th- those are two different exo, uh, commanding officer commands, rather. But uh, the um, commanding officer or the EXO that I was in his office, I said, look, I'm, I'm just not going to do it, so just write the papers out. I know you've got to pull these levers and push these buttons. Just do it, and I'll take care of it from there. <laughs> and um, so anyhow, Lord bless. Russell? <coughs> Pulling on the the thread that he um, was pulling on, the Daniel and his three friends dressed for rehearsal was to eat the table, to eat the food from the table of the king. Right. Versus right. food, water, and our health. Yeah. That, that was their dress rehearsal. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, right after, right after they had been taken captive and mutilated or whatever was done to them mm-hmm. uh, in the company of the eunuchs. Um, so the. If, if Satan's not stupid, he's going to he's going to induce certain compromises along the way of, to 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 tempt the the, the remnant into into sacrificing uh, their personal integrity, into treating people with uh, with tyranny and coercion and threat, uh, so that when if if and when the Sabbath does become an issue. They will already be conditioned to, to go along the path of least resistance. That's right. I think, I think this idea of conditioning is what's happening. You know, we, are, we have whole societies that are conditioned to say, oh, this is okay, or they know what they're talking about, and we've stopped the critical thinking that Larry points out over here. Um, I, I, just like I said, I want to just introduce this idea of what it means to be moral. And I, I teach this with the guys down there in, in what we call the Just Warrior training but um and my kids always say dad you you're not webster you can't change the meaning of a word so if this doesn't sound like the right meaning of a word just take the illustration here so if i were to ask you what is it when you say somebody is moral what do you mean when true to principle he's true to principle okay what what else would you say Okay, well, let me ask you this. Can you have a good moral person and a bad moral person? Yes. All right, so morality, or being, being moral, rather, doesn't necessarily mean, even like Webster says, that it means that somebody is good versus somebody who's bad, because you can have a bad moral character. That's what moral is. It's about our character. So if I can have a good moral character and a bad moral character, being moral isn't about being good, it's about something else. What is that? I would suggest to you that being moral has to do with the idea of being responsible for the character and relationships that we develop, our sense of purpose, our principles, and our habits. 
We build the character. In other words, we took responsibility for the character that we develop and the relationships we develop. That makes me a moral person. I can, I could be, you know, Escobar, you know, and a, a, a drug cartel king, and I could be a charismatic person. And I understand the importance of creating a, a presence, and that when I walk in a room, people know that a very strong character is there, and it establishes certain kinds of relationships. Or I can be, I always compare Pablo Escobar and Jesus. I can be Jesus in the room. It's a completely different thing, but both are well-defined characters. Would you agree? The idea of moral is about taking responsibility for who you are, why you exist, how you will live, those kinds of things. We use the term amoral. How would you define amoral? (coughs) I I would say again. No conscience? Uh, no, no conscience. Yeah, basically no governing principles or purpose or habits. Completely seat of the pants. Uh, if you've ever read the book Catcher in the Rye, which was very popular among some of the early conspiracy theories, uh, everybody had one. I go, what is the big deal about this book? I tried to read it. It was pathetic. Um, but if you read the synopsis of the book, it says, The Rambling Thoughts of a Wayward Youth completely random no guiding principle or purpose no good habits totally seat of the pants an amoral person is someone who takes zero responsibility in their character and their sense of purpose in life you got that so that i i would i would like to use that as moral and amoral what about immoral see that's where we think an immoral person is a bad person, a bad person. I would like to suggest again a little nuance. I'm not Webster. You can argue with Webster later, but uh, my kids get all my case all the time. <laughs> but uh, I would like to argue the idea that immoral has more to do with the society you're in. You don't fit that moral ethic. If you're part of a biker gang, you know everybody has a certain moral ethic. Never mess with the families. If you do, there's a price to pay. But a immorality in a church would be a completely different set of criteria. Wouldn't you agree? So different ethics. So moral, immoral. Forgive me if I'm, I'm, I'm really confusing, but the, I want to get the idea that this has to do with about are we building our character and our societies, our relationships? Those two things. When someone is demoralized, what does that mean? Discouraged. They, they, they become discouraged. I've been demoralized. You know? I, mean, I, would, I would suggest to you it's when you rob somebody of the personal power or capability, the willpower, to determine their purpose, principles, and practice. In other words, we take from them their ability to build a moral character. And we become in bondage to somebody else's purpose, principles, and practice, good or bad. That can happen in the church. That can happen in, in wicked environments as well. How many remember the story of the three women who were held captive for 10 years up in Cleveland, Ohio? They were, they were beaten down. They were humiliated. They were 
tortured, they were defiled and violated, everything happened to them, they were completely demoralized. So we go in, we rescue them. We say, you're free. Can we set them free? No. No. But that's what we'll, I mean, that's, that's the thought, the notion. Oh, now they're free. Thank goodness. Oh, they can't even fit inside. They're, they don't know how to function. They can't make their own choices. They have no sense of purpose in life. They've been completely demoralized, robbed of any ability to become who they, or you know, what we call self-determination, self-governance, self-reliance, zero. They're, they're done. So they have to be rehabilitated. Um. Where was I going to go with this? It's important. So um, think of the children of Israel. How long were they in captivity? They were, they were beaten. They were humiliated. Who knows? They were maybe even murdered randomly. Uh, uh, and, and so they were always in fear, always trying to survive. Uh, they, they, were, uh, they were demoralized in many ways. In fact, when God rescued them, Remember, they had the concept of Pharaoh's kings or Pharaoh's gods and, and their gods were bad and they had oppressed them and put them in bondage and slavery. But now Jehovah comes in and he rescues them. And so now what's in their mind? Our God is bigger and better than their God. Is that the right concept of God? No, God says, oh, we've got a lot of work to do here. We're going to have to get them rehabilitated. So when they come out and in the desert, what's one of the first things God gives them? Ten Commandments. He says they're never going to make it on their own. So he says, if you love me, if you love me, keep these commandments. Why? When they're not going to save you, what will they do for you? Point you in the right direction. What's that? Reprogram. Reprogram. Diagnose you. They, they, they can be a diagnostic tool, but they can also be, like um, I think Tim uses the, the term, um, a, uh, um, when, we, when we keep everybody in one room, what do they call that? Quarantine. <laughs> quarantine, thank you. That's the term I was looking for. It can be, yeah. So it can quarantine us, and I would suggest uh, this idea that if I follow, if I love God and I follow these commandments, it will protect me from what? Dangerous behaviors. If I kill somebody, they're going to want to kill me. If I steal from someone, they're going to want to steal me. If I have a different God than the true God, it's going to mess up the way I think. I'm going to become woke. And um, if I, if I, <laughs> I'm, I'm political, aren't I? Sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> if, uh, it, it, but you understand the Ten Commandments are protective. They won't save me, but they'll protect me so I can be saved. So I can be rehabilitated, have a right understanding of God, a right relationship with God, have through the faith of Jesus Christ. That would Jesus, you know, Jesus comes after that, you know, what, uh, 430 years afterwards. In fact, Paul was critical of the Jews. He says, how long ago was it you left 430 years ago and you're still relying on the Ten Commandments to save you? No, no, no. It's the faith of Jesus that saves you. But the Ten Commandments, those are also part of being a child of God because you won't do those things that can destroy you. So one is relational, one is behavioral. You notice how we always have that argument, you know, always caught up in behaviors. Well, that was Paul's argument. 
and John was saying, you know, John says, um, sin is transgression of the law. What did we talk about last time I was here? Transgression is a trust violation in a relationship. So sin, capital S, big S, transgression is a relational issue. When we transgress the law of God, we transgress or we betray the relationship we have with God. Versus sin with a little s, which is moral behavior or moral failures in our character. So John, the apostle, he says, uh, sin is transgression of the law. Paul says the law was added because of transgression. That's kind of odd, isn't it? Unless they're talking about two separate laws. Paul, I mean, John says, sin is transgression of the law. Which law is that? The law, what, design law? And we're going to expand it, but uh, uh, Ellen White says in Steps to Christ, she says, she calls that the law of love. Okay? The law of love, you violate the relationship and you're going to need some behavioral guidance. <laughs> so Paul comes back and says, I'm going to add some guidance. God adds the Ten Commandments. If you think about it, if you have a neighbor, you don't like your neighbor. He doesn't like you. And uh, is it possible, am I more inclined to maybe throw trash in my neighbor's yard? <laughs> I'm more inclined to do that because I don't like him. I have a breach in my relationship. And he might throw more trash in my yard because we have a broken relationship. So I, I don't like to get all theological. I like to get more basic. I don't get, uh, sometimes I think, our theologies confuse us. But if we get down to the basic relationship, if I have a right relationship with God, I'm more inclined to bear fruit of righteousness. If I have a wrong relationship with God, I'm more inclined to bear fruit or behaviors that are wrong with God. And that's basically, in my opinion, what Paul and John are talking about. Sin is transgressing or violating a relationship of trust. And Paul says, because you're kind of messed up morally, uh, you're basically demoralized or morally immature, we're going to have to give you, God gives you the Ten Commandments to guide you through. Both are God's law. Would you agree? I want to expand on the idea. So we have, both of those are God's law. Let's put all that in one package. In our life today, there are only two kinds of laws that we face. Do you know what they are? The laws, I know you can't read my mind, but, but they're the laws that we make up as human beings. We call those legal laws, okay? And uh, there are the laws that God made. But what's unique about the law that God made is how it functions and operates. Now, Tim uses the term design law. I would like to add to that to amplify it and hopefully even give us something more uh, 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 and again, we'll, we'll see how the critics come out in the, in the, in the comments this week. <laughs> Those two laws. So, so here's, here's something. Uh, let's, let's read, um, Dean, the uh, Desire of Ages one where it talks about the deception, the law. Um, I think I, I, I took a bunch of, of it out and, and summarized it here. So if you go to Desire of Ages 763, you'll get a much longer one. But it basically says, the last, it is the last great deception that he will bring upon the world. The last one. 
Very last one. Where are we? The last great deception. What's that going to be? By substituting, is that where we are? Yeah. By substituting the human law of, uh, by substituting human law for God's law. Satan will seek to control the world. Interesting, isn't it? If God, if, if, if Satan can get you to substitute human law, which is a legal man-made system, authoritarian way, and superimpose it on God and make you think that God's law operates like man's law, then it becomes, then God's law becomes legal and contractual and it just messes up our theology big time. But this is where I think a deception has come into the church as well as to society that, man, that God's law and man's law operate the same. God's, laws are, God's ways are higher than man's ways, right? They're not the same. So how are they different? And, how, uh, and, and let's keep in mind that that is the last great deception. And then there's a, you may not have it, but it says the warfare against God's law, which was begun in heaven, will continue until the end of time. Every man will be tested obedience or disobedience. The question, it is the question to be decided by the whole world. Um, all will be called to choose between the law of God and the laws of men. Here are the dividing laws will be drawn. There will be but two classes. Every character will be fully developed and all will show whether they have chosen the side of loyalty or that of rebellion. Then, then the end will come. So, uh, just as in the book of Revelation, uh, chiasm, it takes us to the most important point, the Old Testament, the collection of all of the books is also organized and ordered in a type of a chiasm. Um, so there are 39 books in the Old Testament and I could spend all day on this, but, but there are 17 books at the beginning which are considered historical. 17. They can be further divided into 5 and 12 and then to nine and three, before the exile, after the exile. And then the last 17 books of the Old Testament uh, are prophetic. And they also can be divided into five and 12 and then, and then nine and three. And there's kind of a mirroring. Some of these guys over here knew these guys over here. Same time, before the exile, after the exile. The five Pentateuch and the five major prophets. Right in the middle of the Old Testament... And by the way, this is in my notes for, for reference. Right in the middle of the Old Testament is um, what we call the wisdom and poetry. The Bible introduces wisdom and poetry in the very middle of the Old Testament like not a passing random thing or just a convenient organization, but rather as the most important part of the Old Testament. These are often called inner experience books, books where we ask the big questions of life and things like that. So of those five books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, what's the one right in the middle? The book of Proverbs. Proverbs is introduced as the most important book of the Old Testament. It introduces the concept of wisdom, okay? Let me, inter- let me give you an idea what wisdom, the Hebrew word for wisdom is called chokmah. Not that my Hebrew matters, but basically it's the word call of wisdom. Chokmah is described as an invisible creative force 
that guides people in how that they should live, yet you can't see it, like you can't see gravity, but it's there, it's everywhere, and it affects everything. The idea of wisdom, I would submit to you, is an understanding of design law or natural law, how God created things, how he created everything to work. This is his protocol for life. And even more important, this creative, this creative invisible power is not an impersonal force. It's a living attribute of God. It literally is, if God is love and his law is love, his creation is based upon the law of love, which has inherent consequences, both for blessings or curses for our existence. If we live in harmony, there are blessings. If we live out of harmony, there are curses. Um, God used chokmah to create the entire universe. He wove it into the fabric of everything, how everything works, how everything is designed to work. What's interesting about Proverbs is uh, at the very last chapter, you remember the Proverbs 31 woman? Is she here, by the way, today? Has anybody seen her? <laughs> right here, right here. We got one. We got one. So, but you look at her, she, no, that's impossible. That doesn't exist. Because it's not a real woman. It's lady wisdom. It's, uh, if you, once you get to know Solomon, you start realizing the woman in his wisdom is, is a personification of wisdom or chokmah. And Proverbs basically is saying, seek that virtuous woman. She's more valuable than rubies. Find her. Because that's the way I want you to live, by chokmah, by wisdom. Wisdom is so much more interesting of an idea to pursue. Um, and not, not the wisdom of man, which is basically, how do I get what I want? Uh, survival of the fittest. But the wisdom of God is that this is how things work. This is how things operate. Now, my son just got married two weeks ago. Great wedding. And I got to do a little, little uh, worship thought for the group. And I, I did it on Song of Solomon. I know. It's racy. Um, but uh, Song of Solomon is, is, uh, uh, is a racy book. It's, it's, it's erotic. And God's not even mentioned there. You go, what is this doing in the Bible? But there are more commentaries written on Song of Solomon than any other book in the Bible. Did you know that? That makes it really interesting. But the woman, uh, by the way, the primary voice in Song of Solomon is a woman. She speaks most of the time. And she's always hunting for her beloved. She's always seeking him out. And, and she can't wait to find him. When she does find him, she's overjoyed and there's a great celebration. Then it starts to get a little racy and the, poetry, the poem stops and the next one comes and it just kind of gets more and more intense. Um, so the, 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 the message really of Song of Solomon, if we do the personification of wisdom, is that wisdom is pursuing you. Let her find you. Let her find you. Proverbs says, seek wisdom, find her. Song of Solomon says, she's looking for you too. Let her find you. This is when we, if, I know I'm just connecting dots, but I think that's where the cleverness of a scripture is. When we start connecting dots and ideas, we're going to start seeing chokmah or wisdom as design law. This is the way God made everything to do. And the Ten Commandments are also God's law, but they are written for a particular purpose. What was that purpose? Keep us from destructive behaviors when we're in a sinful environment. 
If there's no sin, those don't do this, don't do that are unnecessary. You follow me? And by the way, I'm not trying to disgrace the Ten Commandments because we know the character of God's people will be the faith of Jesus and the Ten Commandments. God knew what he was doing. It's like running a household. In my house is love. Out there is danger. So when you're in my house, just operate by those natural laws that design the way I made you. Let love be reciprocated. Love, life, liberty be reciprocated. But if you go outside the door, there are people out there who don't like you and they will take advantage of you. So kids, when you go out there, make sure you look both ways when you cross the streets. Dangerous. Uh, Don't take candy from strangers. And uh, don't get in a vehicle with someone you don't know. Okay? Why do we do that? Because we know it's dangerous out there. So when we understand those simple distinctions between the faith in Jesus and, and chokmah and wisdom, the way God designs everything to work, and understand the threat of sin and why he gave us the Ten Commandments, boy, that just makes it much more valuable, to me anyway, it makes it much more valuable. And I get more excited about understanding God and his law because these are going to be the crux of the issues in the last days. It was this understanding that helped me see right through the vaccine mandate. I, I know it doesn't sound like, but this was part of my understanding. I understood that, like Larry said, we should be thinkers for ourselves, not sacrifice our thinking to some authoritarian. Amen. I should be reasonable. I'm created in the image of God. The higher reasons of, of, of conscience that you mentioned and worship. Uh, Tim's great little book out there, Could It Be That Simple? Oh, this simple, great little outline of things, the issues. Wonderful. So I would add that to Tim's idea of design law, the way he has phrased the idea of natural law, design law, which I think is much more precise. But when we think of hokma, you know, when, these, when everybody comes up and says, we have to be scientific about this. I don't, what does that mean? You know, I have to listen to Fauci? Um, is that what it means? I, oh, he's, he's science, so I need to listen to him because he does that. Or what about, well, I need to listen to religion. Uh, the pastor, what he says. The pope, what he says. But if you take some time and meditate upon this, you're going to see that chokmah, wisdom, eliminates those arguments. Both of them. Chokmah is the way God made things. And when you start studying the, the fact that you were re- created in the image of God and the way he made things, you go, oh, this is my responsibility. And I need to live in harmony with God as opposed to rebellion against God. I get much more excited about life. And, and this idea of... Um, <laughs> anyway, the, the idea of wisdom basically destroys... They're the same thing. Science and religion. Same thing. It's the way God made things. The more you come to know and understand it, those who say science, is, there is no God, and religion, there is God, but there's no science. But no, no. It is a reasonable, rational faith that we have. And more we understand God and his creation, his laws, and how they operate and function, the much more, uh, I, think, I think the much more victorious uh, we'll be in life. Any questions or thoughts on that? Did I take us way off the beaten path? 
Yes, ma'am. One thing that popped into my mind when we were talking about the the three Hebrew boys and and on, on the uh, having to make the decision and and I vis visualized three people amongst I don't know how many thousands mm -hmm. and you couldn't miss them through the whole plane. It was the decision when they were first taken captives, when they were brought up and of the diet, and so they had to make little decisions along the way. And to me, this pandemic has been kind of to me a wake up for me and maybe others as well like the gentleman said we thought it was going to be this way or we thought that we were going to have to choose between this but no it's going to have to be our relationship with god and our and and understanding him and the laws and to me this has been a wake up for me mm -hmm. and how can i be ready and how can i share with others to share the hope and the you know i have a i have a someone close to me who worked at mckee's and they retired and when they were young, they said, I had all kinds of ambitions and goals and things I wanted to do. And, um, but after working in a factory, doing one thing over and over and over, getting used to the paycheck, he says, I don't even know what I want to do the rest of my life now. I have no sense of purpose, no mission, no principles that make me get out of bed or do anything differently. And, and it's just an illustration that society, Satan is clever, he works through all these organizations to deplete our ability to be moral people, to take responsibility for who we are, why we're here, how we're going to live. It deplete our, 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 our moral powers, demoralize us to where um, we're going to just, like sheep, you know, sleep to, sheep to the slaughter. That's the, the, the notion. So you, you're right. It's time to wake up and take personal responsibility. I can't change my society i can't change my church i can't change the sin in the world but i can change the sin in my heart i can change the character i have and and the way i think and the way i'm motivated and moved and i can live by god's uh, law his chokmah uh, and um and by his ten commandments and and hopefully impact my you know the world you know jesus did and what did they do to him killed him so don't think it's going to be a pleasant tree. You know, you take a, you take a stand with Christ and you start standing up for principle and uh, uh, for truth and for, with love, you will make the necessary sacrifices and it won't be easy. So I mean, nobody's preaching a prosperity gospel here, uh, but I'm preaching one I'm very excited about, one that gives me strength for every day and, and helps me be victorious. I, don't look to me as any example. That's not it. That's not the point. Um, but anyway. I've read several of Tim's books and we talk about it a lot. But can you briefly, uh, simplistically, give me a definition of design law again? Um, well, basically, you know, Tim uses the idea of the protocols for life, for reality. Protocols for reality. So God creates... Um, you're going to have to ask Tim for a better definition. But, but, but God created all of the universe, heaven and earth. And his laws have been governing it from the very beginning. And there's a great quote. It's in the notes. But it says even in heaven, when Satan rebelled and, said, and was in challenging the law of God, the angel said, what law? What are you talking about? I mean, it was that dumbfounded. Because it's the way that things operate. It's, it's in nature. Uh, spirit of prophecy, or I mean, Ellen White 
tells us the storehouse of truth is in three things. And Tim has it in his trilogy out there, the, uh, the, the Venn diagram he uses. Uh, Ellen White says the exact same thing. I'm going to tell you Tim's secret. He just repackages Ellen White in a way you can understand it. So now I destroyed his whole business now. I know. So, but, but she says that, uh, she says that the treasure house of wisdom of truth is, is in nature, the book of nature, the written word, the scripture, and our personal experience or faith with God. And then the importance that he puts in his, in his Venn diagram is how they operate together. One balances the other so we don't become extremists to one way or the other. Uh, you know, nature could be like a new ager. Uh, somebody's only scriptural. We could be, you know, killing people based on scripture. <laughs> uh, and that sort of thing. Mr. Green. Uh, ask about the design walls, what they are. <clears throat> I had that question too because it seemed like it was kind of difficult to see all of the design walls. Yeah. And so I was pleased a couple of weeks ago to see that Tim does have, you know, in those little um, pass outs, handouts uh, against the far wall, uh, the design laws. Mm -hmm. And he goes through them one by one. I mean, just brief um, explanation of it. You know, so you might want to pick that up as you go out. And what I'm trying to add to the definition of design law is wisdom. Pursue wisdom. Wisdom. How did God make things to operate? And when we see, because when the Bible uses the term law, we all just kind of put one thing to it. Ten commandments. That's the definition. But if you look at it, the, the term law in the Bible refers to many different things. The, the health laws, the, the, the laws of the sanctuary, the ceremonial laws, the Ten Commandments, uh, society and government, all these things. So there's not just one definition of the word, but we only use one word in the Bible, law. Um, yes, ma'am. I, I just want to add, definitely protocols for life and the way reality operates, but it's the way those, the way design laws operate as opposed to imposed or arbitrary laws that thank we you. make. Thank you. So they are woven into the design, so there are inherent consequences associated with being out of harmony with those design laws. Nobody has to police, nobody has to punish, mm-hmm. nobody has to watch or punish you if you jump off the entire state building. There are inherent consequences with being out of harmony with the law of gravity. Um, so I just want to... I wanna no, that, yeah, I couldn't have said it better, Lori. Thank you. As I was getting there, but that's... That's important. So the way those two laws function, Tim has also kind of outlined that in some of his handouts on, in his thing. Um, but you understand the term imposed versus inherent or um, arbitrary versus universal. Uh, uh, remember sin, the wages of sin is death. This is that deception. So if I look at, at um, and I'll, I'll spell out here in a minute, but just really quickly, if I say the, uh, it's a legal concept, the wages of sin is death. I'm going to perceive God as coming down and punitively punishing me, inflicting something on me. But if I see it as relational or, or by design, then I understand that uh, the wages of sin is death. That means if I live out of harmony with wisdom or, or design law or God's ways, I'm going to die. <laughs> if I stop breathing, I'm going to faint. There are inherent consequences, uh, as Lori had pointed out. So those two things. There's no need for law enforcement with God's way. 
we all, all we often ask, well, <laughs> we want to make God our Santa Claus and our assassin. You know, I don't like that guy. Take care of him. Or I really want this. I need that. It just distorts the way God operates. But, and he's not a legal God. That's a man-made idea that has imposed uh, laws on a society because we, have, we, have, we want a certain outcome. So it's arbitrary to our needs, what we want. And then we have to have law enforcement uh, and all of that to inflict a punishment, to motivate you to keep the law, etc. Wages of sin is death. The punishment of sin is within the sin itself. It's, it's just the way it is. And you start seeing how God operates. And of course, we can get into does God kill? We'll talk about that at another time. Um, but that's it. So now I know my time is up. Am I allowed to keep going? Yes. All right. Just a, I want to make one last, um, and they can close this as early as they want. So this idea that uh, uh, the deception of making God's law operate like man's law, it creates this concept that God's law operates like a legal system or, or what we would f- refer to as a contractual language, uh, a contract. Like uh, I want to buy Mike's car and Mike says, okay, a thousand bucks. I don't got a thousand. So I'm going to give you a hundred down. Are you okay with that? I take the car. I drive to work. I have a terrible accident. The car is gone. I can't go to work. I can't pay for the car. Mike can pursue legal, con- legal measures to get that. And I said, and I'm going to go to jail if I don't pay him the other 900. He's pretty tough. And, um, uh, and, uh, but, but fortunately, this guy comes along and my brother says, Mark, I got this. I'll pay for it. So he pays for it. And now this legal contract I have with him is fulfilled. Okay. So in this scenario, Mike would be God. My, my brother would be Jesus. And I would be the sinner or the, the one who broke the, the, the contract. Uh, if, if I looks like our, my problem with God is a legal problem, then uh, Jesus and God are on separate sides. You see how that distorts that? And um, uh, I think that once I get paid, I mean, once I pay him off, I don't ever want to see Mike again. You follow me? No need for a relationship there. Because <laughs> that was a bad experience, you know, buying a car from him and him prosecuting me and blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's the deception if we superimpose a contractual language on the relationship with God. But if we see a covenant relationship with God and we understand that Satan lied about the character of God to break that relationship, violate the relational uh, concept of God, faith in Jesus. That's why that's why Jesus is so critical, because he's the truth about God. So Satan tries to break this relationship, sin, transgression, which causes bad behaviors. But when Jesus comes, the way, the truth, and the life, and he heals that relationship, and we enter into a right relationship with God, there's strength there in restoring and redeeming of, of, our, of our relationship and our character. Um, so rather than, real quick, Two more minutes and I'm done. Uh, So if we believe that Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross and he paid a great price for our sins in a contractual language, then God the Father didn't forgive me for anything. You follow me? Because it's just a contract paid. If God the Father, who loves me and accepts me and forgives me unconditionally, 
I believe that to be true. Then I have to ask, why did Jesus have to die? I hope, I hope if nothing else, I'm creating a lot of questions in your head because this is where the understanding of how God's law operates resolves that paradox, that conflict, that, that uh, um, conundrum. Why did Jesus have to die? <laughs> two more minutes two more minutes uh, well scripture tells us clearly that he died to destroy death itself and him who holds the power of death is the devil he died to destroy the devil's work and he died to bring life and immortality to light yeah so the book of revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ what did Jesus reveal I would suggest to you he revealed at least four things. He revealed the truth about God, the Father. God is love. His love is wisdom, if you will, the design law, all that. Life, love, liberty. He also revealed the truth about Satan. He's the disease. A liar, a thief, and a murderer. He also revealed the truth about man. Our fatal condition. If nobody intervened, We'd be like the sheep. We'd just, oh, I think I'm doing fine. I'm working my nine to five. I'm getting paid. I got my big screen TV in my truck. Everything's good. I would not know that I have a problem unless somebody told me and revealed that. Jesus came to reveal the truth about us, that we're on Satan's side. The fourth thing that, that Jesus revealed when he came is that he's the only remedy. He's the only one who could show us what the Father's like. No angel can do that. No good person can do that. Only Jesus, as the Son of God, knows exactly what the Father is like. He's the full expression of the Father, remember? You want to know what, you, you want to know what I'm, the Father's like? Look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Full expression. So Jesus is a revelation. Well, they were going to get criticized with moral influence theory. That all Jesus did was reveal things. No. Moral influence theory is the idea that we look to Jesus as our example, and that's it. It's a great great theology, by the way. And all preachers use it. All preachers. Anybody who tells you differently, no. Jesus is an example to us. That's true. But it's an incomplete truth. The complete truth is more along the lines of Christus Victor or the healing substitutionary model that that, uh, we use here sometimes. Because Jesus, once he reveals the truth, once you've seen the truth of what's happened in the last few days, it's changed your, changed your motivation, isn't it? Changed your direction in life, changes your decisions. You see, once we have the truth about God, we move into a right relationship with God. And, the, and, and Spirit of Prophecy and Desire of Ages, it is finished, says that he imbues in us the transforming power of his character. This is no, this is no moral influence theory where I can change my, my, myself, but God changes me from the inside out. And the, there's, this, there's this reciprocation with me and God where I'm learning more about him and he's learning more about, he's getting to know me better and I'm getting to know him better. And it's relationships that transform us. And so a right relationship with God is a saving relationship. Faith in Jesus Christ. That faith rep- uh, signifies or indicates a relationship. Okay, there's a whole bunch of notes Thank you for your patience and your, your kindness and your good conversation. Why don't we have a word of prayer and we'll close. And 
Heavenly Father, again, we praise you and we hope that we have glorified you and made things um, along the lines of truth and wisdom and that we will come to know your love that transforms us, that was from the very beginning of, of, your, of your existence and how you made this world. Thank you again in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.